The details of this week's episode are just abhorrent. This is why I'm placing a trigger warning here before I even get into my patented plunging you into the story and media res move. Okay, it's not patented, or if it is, it's certainly not patented by me because I'm user 4,580 million jillion. So if you can't deal with nightmarish stuff, go back to episode, I'm trying to think of a wholesome episode of this podcast. There's really none. Well, the last one was a eulogy for our dog, and that was fairly wholesome, but I've been told it made grown straight men cry. And I know it's wrong to attribute a normal lack of emotion to straight men. It's like attributing a love of poppers and doja cat to me, but I guess what I'm saying is people were touched. I've really backed myself into a content corner, though, when it comes to wholesome stuff. Maybe I should start like a companion podcast to Wicked Gay that's about wholesome things like cartoon puffins and grilled cheese. That reminds me, I'm definitely bringing back Wicked Good Gay for this episode just to offset the evil of this one. Anyway, where was I? Oh, okay. So this guy I'm going to tell you about in this episode did some truly, truly atrocious things. So bad that I'm only going to give you his MO once and in very limited detail. I might even have to write it on paper and then mail it to you. It's so bad. So if you're easily skeeved, this one is not for you. This is Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. This is episode 14, Rancid Werewolf, Michael Lupo. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jay Harvey. This episode is different because I'm really not going to start with that in-media res, middle-of-the-story type thing because, well, let me start off by saying that there's not a lot of information on Michael Lupo. No one's written a book. There's nothing on Netflix. I suspect this is because, as we witnessed in past episodes, this serial killer's victims were gay men. In my true crime travels, I've noticed that if gay dudes are the victims, the media isn't that entranced. I'm not whining, it's just how it is. Also, Lupo was a twofer when it could come to societal disregard because not only was he an evil gay guy killing gay guys, but he was an evil gay guy with AIDS killing gay guys. And that was definitely a newsroom editorial meeting ender in 1986. Oh, a serial killer? Oh, how did he kill? Who were the girls? Uh, he killed guys? Gay guys? He had AIDS? Okay, let's just go with the dog show story, right? And it also definitely had something to do with the nature of his crimes. Like I said, they were gross, truly. Michael Lupo was basically a caricature of everyone's worst fears about gay men. The only thing he had left to do was drive around in a white van dressed as a clown napping little boys. So thanks for that, Michael. As for me, I confess, I wanted to do an episode about him because he referred to himself as the Wolfman because he was Italian and his last name meant wolf in Italian. And that's just cheesy perfect for me. I love shallow showmanship when it comes to my villains. And it's how it's also how you know he was an asshole because, I mean, despite the murder, uh, besides the murder, he gave himself that nickname. Like, he called himself the Wolfman. Only assholes do that. You know that part when Jennifer Grey tells Charlie Sheen and Ferris Bueller when they're in the police station that her name's Jean, but most guys call her Shauna? And Charlie's like, okay, Jean. Well, someone should have okay Gene this asshole Michael Lupo. You probably could have avoided a whole bunch of bullshit. And by bullshit, I mean grotesque torture and death and mutilation and murder. Tired sigh. Oh, and the other reason I wanted to do this story is that, and again, this is a totally shallow reason, is that although there are conflicting stories about Michael Lupo's livelihood, most of them mention that at least some point in his life, he worked at the Yves Saint Laurent boutique on Bromley Road in London. 
I love that there was a serial killer working at Yves Saint Laurent. If you take away the gross murder and loss of life and horror, that's so stylish. It would be even more stylish if he had just stylishly killed guys with the velvet sash cord and that was it, and didn't do the rest of the stuff, but unfortunately he wasn't that stylish. There aren't a lot of photos of Michael Lupo. I only found two in my research, but it showed, they showed, and he was described as a very good looking man, which meant that he found meeting guys to kill very easy. And why did he kill like he did? Well, two reasons. One, he was a sexual sadist who got off in violence toward his victims, brutal violence. And two, he later said that he blamed men for his AIDS diagnosis. Now, Lubo also reportedly bragged that he had been with 4,000 men in his lifetime. That's a lot. That's beyond a fuckboy. We don't slut shame here at Wicked Gay, but 4,000? That's just a lot. And Lupo said it had an effect on him. He was later quoted as saying that, I have been very, very promiscuous, and this left me totally drained and emotionless and insensitive when it came to sex. So I guess the murders might have been a way for him to actually feel something after dulling himself with the open floodgates of dudes in his life. It should also be pointed out that in addition to brutally ending men's lives manually, he also allegedly murdered men by having sexual relations with them without revealing his health status after his diagnosis. So, he was a POS all the way to Wolf Middle London. God, there was even a theme song from if you wanted one. And his hair is probably perfect, asshole. Michel DeMarco Lupo, known as Michael, was born in Italy. Not a lot's available about his life back then. He claimed to have been a choir boy when he was a child, which is dark humor when you consider how he turned out. One important detail about his life before he came to the UK, though was that he reportedly served with an elite commando unit in the Italian army in the early 1970s. It was there, he claimed, that he learned two things of great importance to him. One, he was gay, and two, was how to kill people with his bare hands. Lupo, who I should mind you took his last name seriously, and thought of himself as the Wolfman, I roll, Lupo came to London in 1975. There are, like I said before, there are conflicting reports as to what he did exactly when he came to his professional life. Some reports say that he got a job as a hairstylist and became successful that way. Other reports have him owning either a boutique or a flower shop in London's Chelsea neighborhood. Whichever one it was, they were both considered successes. And other reports have him working out of the Yves Saint Laurent boutique on Brompton Road. Maybe this was the boutique he had? Is why I sell a franchise opportunity like McDonald's? I don't know. I do know that for a gay guy, dude had the gayest professions possible. Was interior decorator not available? I also know that Lupo did well enough for himself to eventually buy a $300,000 home on Roland Gardens, which is a street in South Kensington in London, which I can almost guarantee would go would go for more than a million today. There were also reports that he had connections with some VIP types, either through his social scene or professionally, and that he made business and pleasure trips across Europe and to the States. Whichever was Lupo's main gig, his customers were all wealthy gay men many of whom he reportedly did business with off the premises, if you know what I mean. So he did well for himself and was living the life. And as I said, it could have been a bullshit boast, but Lupo told the police after he was caught that he'd been with over 4,000 men in his lifetime, and that's a lot of extra fingers and toes to count on. And when it came to sex, Lupo had certain tastes. He liked to inflict pain, he liked to bite, he liked to hurt, and he liked to torture. After he was caught, the police would find a homemade torture chamber in his house with the whips and the chains and everything. And with Lupo, we're talking more that he wanted to slap you on the ass a couple times before you got after it. No, he wanted to inflict damage. 
and obviously and eventually he did so on his victims. Guys that got into it with the wolfman who survived him reportedly left the torture chamber in his home with bruises, incisions, bloody noses, and strangle marks around their necks. And besides a lust for sexual sadism, Lupo also gained a huge chip on his shoulder in March of 1986. That's when he learned that he had contracted the AIDS virus. And in 86, we were really just learning about HIV and AIDS, and if you got it, you were doomed. It was a death sentence. Lupo's diagnosis, he said later, enraged him. And it was then that he he decided to let his rage over his diagnosis take over and to go all the way with his sexual sadism and start taking lives. He later told the cops he thought that his victims deserved the punishment for his diagnosis. And after the doctors told him what was what, he didn't waste any time. On the evening of March 14, 1986, 37-year-old James Burns, a railway worker who also had AIDS, was last seen hitting up the leather bars to find companionship. Now, I've never been terminally... Say what you want about James being in the bars looking for dudes, knowing what he had. I've never been terminally ill, so who knows what goes through, who knows what goes through your mind. Maybe it's a complete fuck-it situation. Maybe he wanted just companionship or talk to somebody. I've lived through a pandemic, obviously, but never one that seemed to only affect people like me and my friends initially, and especially not one which killed almost every single person who got it back then. Anyway, some homeless people found his body in the basement of an abandoned building on Warwick Road in Kensington the next day. And, okay, here's the bad part. He'd been sexually assaulted, horribly mutilated in the genital area with a razor, his tongue had been bitten off, his chest cavity had been opened, and he had been smeared in human excrement. Yeah, I know. The one small mercy here, as would happen in the rest of the murders, is that it appeared that Burns's murderer strangled him to death before the rest of the nightmarish indignities that were inflicted upon his body. Nevertheless, uh, James Burns died horribly, and Michael Lupa was just getting started. And ugh, imagine being the person who discovered that who discovered James's body or the cops who had to deal with it, that was probably some trauma meditation wasn't really going to help with. And then three weeks later, on the afternoon of April 6th, kids playing near a railroad shed on Ferndale Road in London found a future therapy bill in the form of the body of Anthony Connolly, a man in his early 20s. He was a waiter. He was found in a nearby embankment in what cops said was almost a carbon copy of the James Burns murder. And just like before, Connolly had been first been strangled to death, with the scarf he'd been wearing before the other horrible things were done to him. Lupo had murdered him in the shed and then just flung his body away on the embankment to traumatize whoever found him, which was kids in this case. And in Connolly's case, it reportedly took a while to get the post-mortem examination done because police discovered that Anthony Connolly's roommate was HIV positive, so the coroner first wanted to make sure that Connolly himself wasn't positive as well. London's gay activists got a hold of this, and there was tension with law enforcement. They were being accused of dragging their heels and not tackling Connolly's death with any sort of urgency because he was a gay guy who had contact with HIV-positive people, which terrified a lot of people, and apparently in this case, the coroner. Later that month, April 18th, Lupo left a gay bar and was crossing Hungerford Bridge in London when he happened upon a 62-year-old homeless man who made the mistake of asking the wolfman for a cigarette. Later, Michael Lupo told the cops that something inside of him, quote, screamed out at the world. He attacked the man, kicking him in the crotch to get him off balance and onto the ground, and then strangling him to death with the scarf the poor man was wearing. He then threw his body over the side into the Thames. 
And you know, it's bad enough that this poor man was homeless and then brutally murdered by a serial killer, but I couldn't find one account that contained this guy's name, this human being's name. That's horrible. So, an interlude. Back in the day, and I'm fairly sure this happens a lot less now because we've evolved into a society where if you want to have sex, you download an app and set something up. Well, back then, the 80s, 90s, before that, off times, guys who wanted instant gratification went down to the local bushes or local men's room. And don't look all aghast at me. Things happen. People have needs. And honestly, the only reason something of that that never happened to me is because I was too homely to lure into a bush. Although I did end up under the dick dock in P-Town one night, but I fled because I got skeeved out by the sheer amount of what a friend of mine refers to as cock zombies. I may talk big, but I'm really a prude. Anyway, this sort of activity has its hazards, then and now, but especially then. And that's what Mark Leyland found out. It was only 24 hours after Michael Lupo killed that man on the bridge that Leyland was lured to a public restroom in London's Charing Cross area by Michael Lupo. When they got there, perhaps sensing that something was off about the Wolfman, Mark decided that there wasn't maybe a spark and declined Lupo's sexual advances. And whereas most humans would maybe make a sarcastic crack about blue balls and go on to warn their friends about the teas and Charing Cross, Michael Lupo pulled out an iron bar and began to try to beat Mark to death with it. Mark was one of the lucky ones. He got away, injured, but alive. And Mark did go to the police, but he reported the incident as a mugging, not as a hookup gone terribly wrong. He had also reportedly experienced some form of amnesia after the attack, but as you can surmise, Leland not getting into the exact circumstances of his attack had an effect on the police investigating it. It would have narrowed the search, and the suspect list if they had known Mark's attacker was a gay man who liked to have sex in London's public restrooms. Then again, maybe not. It's a major metropolitan city in the 1980s. There's probably a lot of dudes hooking up in restrooms, George Michael alone. After failing to kill Mark Leyland, Lupo obviously got all charged up to pull off another successful murder. On April 24th, 1986, the body of hospital worker Damien McCluskey was found strangled in West London. He'd also been raped and mutilated with a razor. And then Lupo ran into the person who would bring him to justice. On May 7th, the Wolfman picked up his last known victim. He took British Railways worker David Cole to what one newspaper account described as, and this sounds so British, a Vauxhall lorry park. I hope I pronounced Vauxhall right. I watched a video of it and everything. And a lorry is a truck, by the way. I know that from reading A Tale of Two Cities in ninth grade and learning about symbolism via Mr. Jarvis Lorry. Anyway, while getting intimate, Lupo pulls out a black nylon stocking and tries to choke David Cole to death with it. David Cole managed to escape, and he went directly to the police. And unlike Mark Leyland, he kept it truthful and told him exactly what happened. This guy had balls because he agreed to go back to the gay bars with an undercover cop and look for Lupo. They finally found him on the night of May 15th in the Prince of Wales pub in Brixton, South London. Cole actually had huge balls because he reportedly walked right up to Lupo despite being terrified and got his attention by saying, don't I know you? So it's like, yes, bitch, sass your attempted murderer and then turn him over to the cops. Michael Lupo was taken into custody on May 18th and charged with the murders of James Burns and Anthony Connolly. He was 33 years old at the time of his arrest. On May 21st, he was officially charged with the murders of Damien McCluskey and the homeless man he'd killed at Hungerford Bridge. I really hope they found out that guy's name. He was also charged with the attempted murders of Mark Leyland and David Cole. 
And he confessed right away, telling detectives that he knew exactly what he was doing when he was chatting up gay guys in bars and then leading them away to their deaths and or messing up homeless people on bridges for kicks. In fact, he reportedly was strolling around in front of them, uh, talking openly about the murders he committed with his hands in his pockets and finding his crimes very humorous. The impression he gave off was one of a man who had already had a death sentence, so why should he care what the cops did to him? He talked about how he had met James Burns in a gay bar called the Colhern or the Colhern Pub, which Lupo helped to make famous because he was one of three serial killers to hunt for victims there between the 70s and 90s. Isn't that creepy? Is there a psycho killer drink special there? And be sure that I will get into those other killers in later episodes of Wicked Gay. He noted that he had strangled Burns with the scarf he himself had been wearing. Scarves obviously figure heavily into the Wolfman story. He murdered Anthony Connolly and the homeless guy on Hungerford Bridge with their own scarves. And about Connolly's murder, he said, I think I got a kind of sexual thrill out of it. Oh, really? When they asked as to why he did what he did, he said, I frankly don't know what answer to give you. There was something in me. I was searching for something, but I really don't know what it was. He finally noted after his, at the end of his confessions that he had been trying to figure out why he had done what he had done, but said, I have not come up with the right answer. A search of his house revealed his homemade torture chamber with the manacles and the torture implements. This, however, is not a crime. It just goes a long way to convincing the authorities and the public that this person is a definite deviant who wants to slice the people with a razor. Once they think you've killed several people and then they find your kinky background with the nipple clamps, that's all he wrote. Another interesting tidbit is that police also found diaries that Lupo kept in which he alleged hookups with, quote, prominent people in London. I mean, a handsome Italian guy working at the YSL boutique. There are probably a lot of well-heeled gay dudes in the London of 1986. Seeing Lupo's picture in the paper after his arrest and breathing a sigh of relief that they made their way out of the YSL logo emblazoned torture chamber alive. He went before the court in July of 87. One of the papers unfortunately referred to him as the gay executioner, which is much worse than anything I've said on this podcast, right? Sparing everybody a whole lot of nightmare drama, he did at least one thing right. He pleaded guilty to all the charges, and he was said to have showed no emotion as the court heard about his horrifying activities. He revealed that he was so angry over his AIDS diagnosis that he decided to take it out on the gay men whom he saw as having given him a death sentence. Yeah, the 4,000 gay men he'd been with. 4,000. I'm sorry, Wolfman, but sleeping with 4,000 guys, something is eventually going to fall off you. He received four life sentences and two terms of seven years each for the attempted murders. The judge at the Old Bailey, which is London's very famous courthouse, was quoted as saying that in this case, life meant life. After his conviction, the London police revealed that they suspected that Lupo had committed other murders. And the International Police Crime Organization, popularly known as Interpol, reportedly looked into unsolved mutilation deaths in the early 1980s in Amsterdam, West Berlin, Hamburg, Germany, L.A., and New York City, all places that Michael Lupo had visited. They were looking for any connection with the Wolfman. He was rich, so have Razor will travel and probably book first class, but no charges were ever filed. The Wolfman spent the last seven years of his life in the hospital wing of Franklin Prison, suffering from various AIDS-related illnesses, and he finally died there in 1995. And that was the Wolfman Michael Lupo, and he was gross, so let's cleanse your mental palate with the return of our Wicked Good Gay segment. Our Wicked Good Gay for episode 14 is Jean-Paul Boubier, aka North Star, Marvel's first openly gay superhero. 
Backstory. I am a giant comic book guy. I have been a Marvel and DC Comics fan since Jesus was a baby. And I'm sure this is no shock to anyone since they became and they still are the longest running allegory for minorities facing bigotry and hatred, but I'm a total X-Men guy. So in 1979, writer Chris Claremont and artist John Byrne, the two guys that gave us the Dark Phoenix saga, they did a story where it turned out that Wolverine had been a spy for Canada. He's from Canada, you know. And that Canada wanted their spy back. First of all, first off, I know Canada has spies, but they're so nice, right? And Justin Trudeau is so cute when he's not making bad choices when it comes to Halloween costuming. So Canada sent the first, and if I'm not mistaken, only Canadian-specific superhero team to retrieve him from the X-Men. They were called Alpha Flight. And one of the members of Alpha Flight was a super speedster, although he flew and didn't run, with the codename Northstar. And Northstar was Jean-Paul Bouvier, a French-Canadian, a snotty French-Canadian former Olympian skier who was A, a mutant, and B, gay. Except you couldn't say you were gay in a Marvel comic in 79. From the beginning, Claremont and Byrne later said they'd always intended Northstar to be gay, but the comics code... So, uh, aside, the comics code was the comics industry self-regulating itself and making sure there wasn't any sex and violence so the government wouldn't get involved and go after them like they tried to in the 1950s. So the comics code that was in place prevented them from saying that North Star was actually gay. So it was years of hints and unspoken context clues whenever he showed up in his clingy black and white onesie. You know, the clues that North Star liked boys. Alpha Flight got their own title eventually, but it wasn't until 13 years later in 1992's Alpha Flight issue 106 that Northstar proudly proclaimed his homosexuality in a storyline in which he adopted an HIV-positive baby. Yeah, I know, gay storyline material back then was kind of boxed in. And I have to read you his actual coming-out dialogue. It's kind of a hoot. Also, please note that I can't do a French-Canadian accent, so I won't even try. Okay, maybe I will. Do not presume to lecture me on the hardships homosexuals must bear. No one knows them better than I. For while I am not inclined to discuss my sexuality with people for whom it is none of their business, I am gay. That was so bad, but that was really his dialogue. Kind of overwrought, but we'll take it. Northstar eventually made the big leagues and joined the X-Men, and he was also the first Marvel character to marry someone of the same gender in Marvel's first gay wedding. So, screw you, Spider-Man, Mary Jane, and Clark and Lois. Currently, Northstar heads up the X-Men spinoff team X-Factor, and he's still snotty and super cool since he was the pioneer queer in Marvel Comics. Granted, Northstar's creators, I'm pretty sure, were all straight men, and the writer who brought Northstar out of the closet is straight, and we know this because he's uh, er, been accused of sexually harassing women at comic conventions a couple of times since then. Why can't we have anything nice? But let's focus on the fact that he existed, he exists, and how super important it was to be a queer comics reader in 92, and the buff guy kicking ass in tights suddenly reveals he's gay. That's huge. It was an important first. So Northstar is this episode's Wicked Good Gay. Sources for this episode include the delightfully named Murderpedia, Wikipedia, the Kensington Post, a blog called Zero Killer Central, and The Independent. Our theme song is still by Genie and the Goons. You can find them on Facebook and Spotify. Additional music by JB. Wicked Gay's cover art is by Paul Chapman. Sound engineering by the other Mr. Harvey. You can find Wicked Gay on all your major podcatchers, so please like, subscribe, and review. 
and follow the podcast on social media under Wicked Gay Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I close by imploring you, please, please don't give yourself your own nickname. It's just not done. You've been listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things.